Welcome back to the program. Revolutions are often exciting. They stir change, mobilize ideas, and often are on the cutting edge of change. But what happens after revolutions is often the work that matters. The problem is that it's hard work. The cameras are off, the story has grown cold, but this is where the work gets done that can truly change the world. Arguably, the women's movement is such an example. While dramatic change once took place, the hard work since has not been enough. While the opportunities for elite women to lean in have never been stronger, American women overall today fare worse than men on virtually every major dimension of social status, financial well-being, and physical safety. Sexual violence is still condoned and reproductive rights are by no means secure. Women assume disproportionate burdens in the home and pay a heavy price in the workplace. Yet these issues are not political priorities, nor is there a consensus that they're even a problem. We're going to talk about this today with my guest, Deborah Rohde. She's the Ernest W. McFarland, professor of law and the director of the Center on Legal Profession at Stanford University. She's a graduate of Yale and a former law clerk of Justice Thurgood Marshall, former president of the Association of American Law Schools, and former chair of the American Bar Association's Commission on Women in Profession. It is my pleasure to welcome Deborah Rohde here to talk about her newest work, What Women Want, an Agenda for the Women's Movement. Deborah Rohde, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Why aren't these issues a political priority? When we look at certainly more and more women in political positions, certainly half the population, why aren't these issues more of a political priority than they seem to be? I think we suffer from what I've called the no problem problem, the sense that barriers have come down, women are moving up, and full equality is, if not upon us, then just around the corner. And even though, as your introduction indicated, by every major uh, measure of social uh, status, economic security, physical well-being, freedom from violence, women fare worse than men, if you ask overall about women's satisfaction, they're just as satisfied with their lives as men are. So there isn't that sense of urgency that fuels a political movement. To what extent is this divide between elite women and many working-class women, to what extent is that divide part of the issue as well? Yes, women don't speak with one voice on these issues. And we live in a country marked by enormous social and economic inequality. And women don't necessarily share a view, especially on issues that are central to the women's movement, um, reproductive justice, child care, for example. Uh, but I think it's important to note that despite these divisions, there are a broad set of issues around which women of all social and economic status generally agree, and those are really at the core of the women's agenda that I think we need to make political priorities. And to what extent are those issues caught up in the political polarization of America today? Well, it comes as no surprise to anyone listening that we live at a time of enormous political paralysis. And it's not a point in history where it's easy to move a social agenda, especially one that's requires some redistribution of resources. Talk a little bit about what are the things that you see 
that need to be part of a women's agenda, political agenda today? I think we need to focus much more on work-family issues. You know, the United States is alone uh, virtually among the developed countries in not having paid parental leave. Even though most uh, children under five will spend their, uh, some of their time in non-parental care, this nation does a very poor job of assuring access to quality, affordable uh, child care. Uh, we've made enormous strides with respect uh, to domestic violence, but still a quarter of women experience an assault by an intimate partner at some point in their lives. We have the highest rate of spousal homicide in the developed world and the second highest rate of rape in the developed world. So we need to do much more around physical um, security. And part of what makes all of these issues, and with respect to abortion uh, and reproductive rights generally, um, the problem is that um, uh, women at the lowest end of the social economic spectrum often find that they can't afford uh, the um, family uh, planning measures that would enable them to have the uh, uh, the capacity to make a full contribution uh, in in their lives. And to make all of these changes possible, we need to do a better job of electing uh, women, but men also who share concerns around these issues. And it's shocking that although women are half the electorate, they're only 18% of Congress uh, and less than a fifth of the governors and mayors of major cities. So we're not doing a, a good job in political representation. We are ranking uh, right around um, Bangladesh in terms of women's representation uh, globally. And all of these uh, issues, I think, need to be at the forefront of the agenda. There also seems to be a reluctance, not to paint with too broad a brush with this, but there is a reluctance among elected women officials to resist taking on many of these women's issues. Well, I think you see that um, resistance really coming more from the right than the left. And um, we know that just putting women in power is not the same as empowering women. Uh, uh, Sarah Palin is not going to be <laughs> at the forefront of the women's agenda. Uh, so it's which women? And it's true that Republican women in general have not been assets in the struggle around most of the issues that I've described. What is it going to take to really bring some of these issues to the forefront, to move beyond what you were talking about earlier, this no problem problem? Well, you know, uh, a century ago, a newspaper editor, William Allen White, said women have to raise more hell and fewer dahlias. And I think that's at the core of, uh, of what needs to happen. Women just have to do a better job of organizing politically and contributing to women's causes, uh, supporting women's candidates, uh, or uh, candidates, both men and women, who are responsive to these concerns. 
do we make a mistake in looking too much to public policy and to political institutions as a way to address these problems? And should we be looking elsewhere, whether whether it's to corporate America, whether it's to individual communities and individual women? Do we place too greater emphasis on politics and public policy in looking to redress these issues? Oh, quite the contrary. I think we are a highly individualized um, society, and we place too much emphasis on um, on seeing these problems as women's problems. And, you know, to take an obvious illustration, um, when it comes to matters of uh, s- sexual abuse, we still tend to victimize uh, women, the, the victims. And rather than seeing our own responsibility to create safe environments and engage in the prevention and uh, and remedial strategies that would make sexual violence less common. Talk about it from the perspective of younger women and, and how you sense they see these issues today. Yeah, I think women, young, you know, uh, younger women have come in for a lot of blame um, for being complacent and thinking that um, uh, the revolution is over and history and not being very well uh, mobilized around these issues. But I think that um, understates to some extent what's going on much more of the political organizing among younger women is happening on the internet and through informal mechanisms and just the um, the capacity of the movement to organize in response to volatile social issues you know to get the NFL commissioner to immediately uh, back down to uh, get a boycott of Rush Limbaugh when he um, uh, made comments about uh, the sexual life of a woman who wanted to testify in favor of uh, contraceptive freedom before Congress. You see that kind of mobilization uh, or the, the so-called slut walks that came when a Toronto police officer said that if women wanted to avoid rape, they should avoid dressing like sluts and the women's communities <laughs> around the world organized protests in which women did um, dress like sluts and uh, popularized the slogan that, you know, this is uh, not an issue of what women look like. It's an issue of male violence. It needs to be seen that way. So I think you're seeing some grassroots um, organizing and some organizing um, electronically, but I think the key is to get more women to do more than push a button. They need to also write checks, be willing to run for office, mobilize around these issues. To what extent is this part and parcel of economic issues and economic insecurity, which often takes precedence over political organization? Well, I think that's a problem, certainly. And for women who are trying to juggle work and family without adequate social support structures or oftentimes um, in contexts in which the domestic work is very unevenly divided, they don't see that they have time to get involved politically. And, and is there anything on the horizon that you think has reason to change that? Well, I, you know, it's a little bit of a chicken and an egg mm-hmm. situation. Mm-hmm. You know, you need women to organize to get work family policies that would 
um, provide the social support and the time they need to organize. But without organizing, it's hard to get those policies. And I think that's one reason why we're, um, why we're, if not stalled, certainly not at a moment of mass mobilization. What is the nexus, if there is one in your view, between racial issues and women's issues and gender issues? Well, there's a troubled history around um, how inclusive the women's movement has been. And certainly we know that um, there was heavy criticism during the early stages of feminism for not being sufficiently sensitive to, uh, to issues of inclusion and diversity. But I think what we need to recognize is that uh, there are a lot of parallels between discrimination on the basis of race and discrimination on the basis of, of sex. And we need to do a better job of convincing policymakers to see those parallels. Is, it be, is there more effective action in terms of policymakers on the state and local level than we're seeing in Washington right now, where we see, as you say, per, nothing but paralysis? Yes, I think that there's a great deal that can be done at the state level. It's harder to organize um, politically just because those issues tend not to have the, the visibility. But certainly um, a number of states have moved in the direction of having paid parental leave, for example. Um, and we're seeing much more innovation around issues of child care at the state level than we are at the federal level. What and early childhood education, which is um, something that benefits not just um, women, obviously, but the next generation. What kind of historical perspective do you think that young women today have? What kind of understanding do they have of the feminist movement and really what it accomplished, what it took on back in its day? Well, I think that too many women see it as a once upon a time um, mm -hmm. issue. And I'm always struck when I teach my gender law uh, class at Stanford Law School to a relatively well-educated group of women how little they know about the organized women's movement, how long it took to uh, have the vote, um, you know, and just all the changes that have happened in the space of a, a generation. When I went to law school, I didn't have a course by or about women, and uh, there was no discussion of discrimination, and that was not for lack of an issue. Why do you think that is, that there's so little historical understanding, so little historical perspective among young women, and whose fault is that? Well, I think, uh, to some extent, um, our educational system um, bears some responsibility for that. But I also think that it's great when the media can get involved, as it has with this kind of program, and bringing these issues to the forefront. You know, when I first came to Stanford as the second woman on a faculty of 36 men uh, and said I wanted to teach a course in gender and the law, the dean was horrified. <laughs> Did I not realize this would, as he put it, type me as a woman? And I said with what I hoped was faint irony, uh, I didn't think it would come as a surprise to most of my colleagues. And what, <laughs> after all, were my choices? 
but of course, from his standpoint, I missed the point. The point was academic credibility. And for that, I needed a real course. And he suggested negotiable instruments. Um, well, times have changed, and so did Dean's. And now, a uh, course on gender is part of the standard uh, educational offerings, but it's still at the margins of the curriculum, and a lot of students um, uh, don't get exposure to women's issues in the mainstream courses, and that's true at, in the elementary, secondary, and college level as well. To what extent have the debates and the issues surrounding reproductive rights and and the polarization that we see there and have seen for so long, to what extent has that been an impediment to the broader issues that we've been talking about? Well, I think that it's been a problem both because it um, diverts women's attention to these highly divisive issues and gets women on opposite sides mm-hmm. where... They should be seeing their common ground. We ought to be making abortions safe and unnecessary, and we haven't done a very good job of either. Um, you now see a lot of restrictions on access to clinics. About a third of women who want abortions can't obtain them because of lack of funding. So we need to do a much better job of um, making women as a group see the need to unite around issues of access, but also of providing the family planning information and reproductive control strategies to young women so that abortions become much less necessary. What do you make of the recent debate with respect to sexual harassment and violence on college campuses? Is that a positive step forward that this conversation is even taking place right now? I think it's enormously positive, and I give the women who've been courageous enough to tell their stories a lot of credit for making this a possibility. The fact that you've got a president who's now talking about these issues is is really unprecedented. Um, It's the first time that we've heard uh, the nation's leader come out and say, uh, these levels of violence on the campus are unacceptable. And we need that kind of consciousness raising and uh, around other issues as well. well. Why is it, in your view, that this has suddenly sprung forward as an issue, that it is part of a conversation that, that is happening from the president on down? Well, I think a couple of things um, have been critical. One is just the fact that we've done such a poor job of really addressing the problem Um, one in five women on a college campus are going to be victims of sexual assault, and despite reform efforts, that figure hasn't changed very much in the last quarter century. So there's really a problem. Um, And then, secondly, uh, women have gotten much more adept at publicizing the problem, making it visible, and figuring out ways to support each other in bringing Title IX complaints. So for the very first time, you've got the federal government enforcement authorities calling on campuses and holding them accountable for the lack of progress. And that really is a function, I think, of the grassroots activism um, by, by young women and their ability to mobilize each other through technology. 
What has been and what should be the role of the courts in some of these issues that we've been talking about? Well, I think the courts need to take a much more active role um, in the area. Just to take one example of reproductive rights, um, not finding a, um, a, a violation in statutes that deny funding for abortion but provide it for child rearing and um, childbirth is a central problem, and that's one that the courts um, and most jurisdictions and at the national level have not been willing to take on. But, you know, most of the issues that I've been talking about are ones that are going to require political action, legislative action. They're, we've dealt with the issues, the easy issues that can be solved by a single judicial decree. Um, but we haven't dealt very uh, effectively with the ones that require redistribution or the ones that require more research into figuring out what really works, for example, in violence prevention. You can't solve those at the individual level of, of judicial opinions. Um, you can do more to sensitize judges and juries to the nature, for example, of sexual assault and to try to remove the focus um, from the victim to the perpetrator. But as I say, I don't think that that's where the major progress is going to come. In some ways, in areas like the, the gap in gender pay and in work family policies, the courts have been an impediment in some areas. Uh, well, there's a limit to what they can do in terms of, for example, the, the pay gap, uh, which is still 77 cents on the dollar. Um, uh, uh, for women for uh, compared to men, but um, you know that's not a, a problem that really can be solved at the ju judicial level. It really reflects the stratification and segregation of the workplace and the lack of adequate work family policies. Um, there are also inadequacies in enforcement resources for um, employment discrimination claims, and we could certainly do a better job there. But again, that's a political strategy to try to get more resources for the agencies that deal with that. When you look at why more women are not taking on a political agenda, not running for office, what, what do you hear? What do you see as the, the primary reason? Well, you know, it's so interesting because when women do run for office, they're just as electable as men. The problem is that women don't run, and they don't see themselves as capable as men. And there's a wide range of studies that suggest what some of the barriers are. They um, Part of it is um, the fact that it requires so much time, especially time in the evenings, for example, that women want to spend with their families. They don't like some of the self-promotion aspects. Women are typically less good at that than men are, and they find uh, the process of raising money more daunting than men do, even though when they enter races, they turn out to be just as good at it. But that's a much smaller number of women who are willing to throw their their hats into the ring, and that really is, uh, I think, a function of lack of confidence um, that isn't really supported by the data. 
of women's success rates when they do run. Mm-hmm. Again, coming back to something you touched on earlier, it's it's the chicken or the egg with respect to the economy, workplace policy, family policies, child care policies, that it really is going to take addressing one to improve aspects of the other. Yeah, all of these issues are interconnected, and there are no easy fixes. You know, we've done the things that are the simplest things um, that can be accomplished through a, a judicial uh, decree. And, you know, this is true of social movements generally. Um, you know, they they wax and they wane after initial successes in dealing with the easy problems and the low-hanging fruit. Then the challenge becomes trying to uh, really uh, deal with the the issues that require redistribution or that have deeper social and cultural, that require changes in deeper social and cultural norms. What are the problems for men, political leaders, taking up these issues? Well, I, you know, I don't see um, problems so much as I see a lack of sensitivity to them. I love a New Yorker cartoon that pictures a number of men seated around a boardroom table, and there's one woman uh, uh, present, and the chair of the meeting looks out at the group and says, well, that's a great point, Ms. Teague. Now let's just wait till one of the men makes it. (laughs) And, you know, what, what that speaks to is not just the marginalization of women's voices, but also the fact that when men take up these issues, they're heard differently than women because it doesn't seem like special pleading. Um, so it's great to have Joe Biden as being out there on domestic violence and campus rape and um, uh, President Obama talking about, as the father of, of two daughters, what the man's stake is in addressing causes of sexual violence. And I think we need to to do a much better job of rewarding male politicians who do take on that role. Deborah Rohde, her book is What Women Want, an Agenda for the Women's Movement. Deborah, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. We'll take a break. We'll be right back.